Summer is almost done. August always comes and leaves as quick as it came. Does it feel like we just skip August every year? I get that feeling. Um, today we finish our Faith Hero series, and as we've walked through this, I'm just going to be looking at this confetti. This is going to be fun. As we walk through this um, Heroes of the Faith series the last few weeks, we've looked at these giants of the faith. And whether it was Rahab or Moses or any of the others we've looked at, we've really seen them under a microscope that they don't look as good when you put them under a microscope as when you look at them from a distance. Have you noticed that? And we've realized that these really are just kind of ordinary, average people at best. Well, if you still think that these faith heroes are somewhat different than us or better than us, I think our final hero of the faith, who is a very revered hero in the Christian faith, I think his story may remove all doubt. And we're going to look at his story together. So if you would turn to Judges chapter 6, and we get our final faith hero and his story this morning. So Judges 6, page 205 in your chair Bible. And uh, if you want a Bible, you take that home with you. It's our gift to you. At any of our campuses, that Bible is our gift. And real quick, I want to welcome our Cincy campus and our online campus. They're joining us today by simulcast. Out at Bainbridge, Pastor Rick is preaching, and he's probably not getting confetti cannoned. Um, but... Judges chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of background before we dive in. The book of Judges chronicles a 350-year period of history for the Israel, Israeli nation. And in those 350 years, they had 12 different judges or rulers. And what was happening is that as a theocracy, their actual leader was God. But God's got this really strange quality about him. He's got this invisibility cloak, right? He's a spirit. You can't see him. And because God's invisible, humans always struggle to stick with him. We always struggle to stay loyal to him because we can't see him. And same with Israel. Because they couldn't see him, they, they kept straying from him. And so God would have to intervene. And in this story, God has intervened with something that every good parent does when their kids stray. What does a good parent do when their kids stray? What's that? Some, they, they give them a spanking. They give them a discipline, right? And it's painful. And discipline is always painful for a time, but it's never, if you're a good parent, that discipline's not intended to hurt for the sake of hurting. It's intended to hurt for the sake of helping. And so we're going to catch Israel right now being spanked by God and watch what happens next. So Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. Now, when you don't have a grocery store and you have to grow your own food, it's a problem if anyone takes that food. And so every harvest season, these bandits, these marauders, would come through their land and just destroy their crops, eat what they wanted, and leave nothing left. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, I love that word, it's descriptive, the hordes 
coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. I can kind of imagine this, right? You're in your home, you're looking out at your crops, about ready to harvest, and you see this horde of camels and all these people coming. They set up their tents, they eat your crops, they destroy your entire nation. Verse 6, so Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And only then, what does it say? Then the Israelites finally did what? Cried out to the Lord for help. Now, I don't want you to miss this part of the story. How long did it take for this to go on before they cried out to the Lord? We saw that in verse 1. It was seven years. It took seven years of this happening over and over and over. And I'm sure the first few years, it's like, okay, we'll get past it. Next harvest season will be better. We'll eat what we've saved up. But then it just keeps happening and happening and happening. It takes seven long years for them to finally get it. Aren't you glad that we're such better people and we get God's lessons quicker? You know, I I got thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I wonder if some of the suffering that our world, our nation has experienced the last few years, I wonder if some of it is God's way of showing us that we've strayed from him. You think that's possible? Because, see, what he's trying to show Israel is that they have really weak gods, They're serving the wrong gods. They've strayed from their worship of God and they're serving these weak gods. And I wonder if perhaps the last few years God has been trying to show us how weak our gods are. I wonder if perhaps he allowed the pandemic to reveal to us that science and technology cannot save us. I just wonder, I wonder if he's allowing inflation and a a possible recession to reveal to us that even our economy can't save us. I, I wonder, I'm just wondering out loud here, if he's allowed drought and poor agricultural weather worldwide right now, I wonder if he's doing it to show us that there's things that are out of our control. Health and wealth make all of us comfortable, but they're terrible gods. And they can't give what God wants to give us, which is true peace and happiness that only comes from him. So God allows disruptions. And for Israel here, there's seven years of disruptions. And finally, after the seventh year of this horrible invasion from these marauders on camels, finally it shakes them loose from their spiritual slumber. And finally they no longer look to their economy. Finally they no longer look to their politicians. Finally they look to God. And when they look to God, God's like, all right, if you're going to look to me, I'm now going to come rescue you. And what happens next is God initiates a rescue plan. So this is the cycle of nations. It's the cycle of churches. It's the cycle of people. We stray. God sends punishment and discipline. We call back to God, and God initiates a rescue plan. Here's God's rescue plan at work. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat down beneath the great tree at O oh, <laughs> I'm always going to say Oprah there, Orpha, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Now, this is God's rescue plan. This is God coming down to tap someone to be their hero. 
And here's the irony of who God goes to tap. Here's a guy who's threshing wheat. Now, again, they had crop issues, so there wasn't a whole lot of wheat to go around. But when you thresh wheat, you're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. And to do that, what do you need? You need wind, because the wind's going to blow the chaff away. And so what you typically do is you go to the top of a hill, and you throw the grain up, the wheat up, and it'd blow away the chaff. And where do we find this guy threshing his wheat? At the bottom of a wine press. So he's underground in a pit. This is not a great place to thresh wheat. Why is he down in this pit? He's a chicken. He's scared of the Midianites. He's thinking, maybe they'll come and see me throwing grain in the air and then take it. And so he goes down into a pit, and he's down there, trying not to get the grain to go over the ground so nobody sees it, and he's trying to thresh wheat where there's no wind. And God comes to this yellow-livered guy, and here's what God says to him, verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, what does God call him? Mighty hero. Cue the laugh track. Right? This is where if this is a sitcom, you hear the canned laughter. Mighty hero. God comes to a guy who's hiding out in a pit trying to thresh grain below ground. And he says, mighty hero. And I can imagine this guy like, who are you talking to? Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now this guy, whose name is Gideon, he has no goals, no support, no confidence. He's a guy who's the smallest member of the weakest family of a no-name clan in his nation. And, and the funny thing is, God is here tapping a rescue plan, so he's, he's about to tap this guy to be a deliverer, a, a rescuer, a hero. And let me ask you this question. If God wanted to tap a young, rising star, could he have done so? Of course. If God had wanted to tap someone who was brave and courageous and looked the part, could God have done so? So why on this day does God go and find a guy who's hiding out in a pit below ground and tap that guy? What I don't want you to miss here is what Gideon couldn't miss, and it's this. God is here tapping the most unlikely person in the entire kingdom. Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. He's like, hey God, I think you got the wrong guy. Hey God, I'm in the pit for a reason. And so he questions himself, he questions God, he questions his faith, he questions 
the suffering they're going through. All he's filled with is doubting and questioning. And God's reply in verse 16 is very simple. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. Now earlier when he first met him, he said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon doesn't know who this thing or being or person is. And then now this person switches and says, I will be with you. I'm sure Gideon's like, I don't even know who you are. I'll be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Here's what you need to know. When God says, I'll be with you, and for believers in him, he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He is with us. If you have God on your side, you always will equal the majority. God plus anyone equals the majority. So he's like, Gideon, this isn't about your strength. This isn't about your power or size or courage. Just trust me. Just trust me. And Gideon's like, ah, that's not good enough for me, but whoever you are. Like, if you're really someone I can trust, then I'm going to put you to the test. Do a miracle for me. Do a miracle for me. And so this being complies and does a miracle for him. And Gideon's like, oh, I think you're God. You're not an angel. You're not a being. You're not a person. You're God. And then he gets really scared. You thought he was scared of the Midianites. Now he's like, once he, find, he sees the miracle and he's like, he realizes he's God, he's like, you're going to kill me. And poor God. Right, Gideon, if I wanted to kill you, I would have taken you out a long time ago, bud. Right? I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to call you. I'm here to use you. And here's what I want you to do. And he gets his first assignment. Here's his first assignment. There's an altar to a false god in his hometown. And God tells Gideon, I want you to go as your first assignment. You've just seen me do this miracle for you. I want you to go in my power and tear down that that altar to the false god, and I want you to then replace it with an altar to me. Assignment number one, this is your mission should you choose to accept it. Go. And so I want you to see how Gideon, our hero, responds. Verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants, and did he do it? Chapter 6, verse 27. He did as the Lord had commanded. But notice the little caveat here. It's like an asterisk. But... He did it, what time of day? At night, because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of his town. Now, I could just imagine him going to his servants and being like, hey, guys, God showed up and said he's with me, and he gave me an assignment. So let's do it, but let's wait till everyone goes to sleep, because I'm terrified. And so in the middle of the night, they do this thing, and they tear down this altar to this false god, Baal. Now, right now, Rick is really upset as he's speaking in Bainbridge because he knows that this false god's name is actually Baal. B-A-A-L, it's pronounced Baal. I'm just going to say Baal because it's easier. And I don't mind mispronouncing a false god. I'll make him angry. Who cares, right? So, so he tears down this altar to Baal. Who is Baal? Well, in the ancient wor- world, Baal was the god of fertility. He was the one that allowed crops to reproduce and people to reproduce. And he was the main god of all gods of the ancient Near East. 
And one of the reasons God was sickened and was willing to destroy the entire land of Israel and hand it over to the Israelites is because of the worship of this false god. So he says, the land is polluted by the worship to Baal. Baal, Baal. The land's polluted. I'm going to let you go in and wipe that worship out and worship me. So Israel does, and then guess who Israel starts to worship over time? The God that they conquered and destroyed the people who worshipped him, which makes no sense, but again, Baal's a God that they can see. There's altars and idols, and God, you can't. So Gideon comes, and he goes toe-to-toe with Baal. Now, when he tears it down, the people give him a nickname, verse 32. From then on, Gideon was called Jerob Baal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. In other words, what happens here is everyone is so terrified of Baal and they know that one of their own countrymen tore down his altar and they're like, hey, it wasn't us. It was Jerob Baal. Let you contend with him. Now, when the people wake up and find that the altar's torn down, They look for who did it. And it looks like the servants ratted him out, and they're like, it was Gideon. So they go to Gideon's house. I don't know what they're going to do with him, but he was in trouble. And guess who comes to the door? His daddy. And Gideon never comes out of hiding. His dad has to stand there at the door with all these angry people, and his daddy defends him. And that's how his first assignment goes. He does it in the middle of the night. He hides in the day. His dad defends him. Are you inspired yet by our hero of faith? Me too. Pretty powerful guy, right? Okay, so that's just assignment number one. Assignment number two, it gets even better. Verse 33. Soon afterwards, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. He also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, and all of them responded. So there's this battle brewing The power of God comes on him. It's about to get big. The first assignment was a little assignment. The second assignment is a huge assignment. God says, all right, now you're ready. I'm going to use you, and we're going to take down the Midianites. We're going to take down your enemies. We're going to end the seven years of of absolute horrible oppression that you guys have experienced. Now, Gideon gets this army together. He's got 32,000 men fighting men who respond from the the nation. And they're going and marching into battle when very unexpectedly God stops them. Before they get to battle, God stops them. And I want you to go to chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have, what's your Bible say? You have too many warriors with you says no general in the history of the world. I have never heard in recorded history when a general said, my army's too big. Let's send some people home. But God shows up and he says, you have too many people. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. 
Now, the Midianites have an army of 132,000 people. Gideon had 32,000. He was 100,000 short. And God shows up and says, Gideon, you still have too many. I'm sure that did a lot for Gideon's anxiety. Like, yeah, God, we're already a fraction of the enemy's size. And you think we have too many? Did you count them? God says, nope, nope, I'm not going to let you go into battle this way. You've got too many. So God takes him through, and you can read this. This whole story is fascinating, but I'm going to summarize it for you. God whittles Gideon's army down from 32,000. Anyone want to guess how many people, how many military guys God sent home that day? God sent home 31,700 of them. And God's like, there we go, 300, perfect. Perfect. Now send the rest home, Gideon. I can imagine Gideon like, what? Do you, do you want me to send home the 300 and keep the 31,700? God, you're reducing me to 1% of my military. 1%. I'm the guy that was in the pit. Remember me? This isn't helping my fear right now. This isn't helping my anxiety. I don't think this is a good idea. And God says, Gideon, I'm with you. Take these 300 guys. And go conquer those Midianites. So watch what happens next. This is fun. Verse 7. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night, the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp. For I have given you victory over them. Now you think Gideon's ready to go? If you ever wonder if God can meet us where we're at, then you should probably circle verse 10. God says, right, go to the Midianite camp, I've given you victory, but if you're afraid to attack. And Gideon's probably like, what gave it away that I'm afraid? All right? Trembling to terror. If you're afraid to attack, go up to the camp with your servant, Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you'll be greatly encouraged. Then you'll be eager to attack. So Gideon took, took God up on his offer. He takes his servant, goes to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies are all down there. They're settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. Weird dream. His companion answered, your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. Now God has already done miracle after miracle after miracle for Gideon to prove he's God. And to accomplish this thing that God says, If you're too scared, go down and listen. 
the miracles that had to happen. Gideon had to be unspotted, approaching an army that was 132,000 strong. He had to have given a guy a dream the night before that the guy didn't understand. He had to allow Gideon to reach that exact guy, unknown who he was, unknown what was going to happen. He had to give the buddy, the military buddy he was telling his dream to, the ability to interpret that dream and to speak loud enough where Gideon could hear it. That's a bunch of miracles. And Gideon hears this and he's like, okay, I'm ready. He rallies the people. They go into battle and they defeat the Midianites. And it's this huge moment where the seven-year mess is finally over. And Gideon is the hero when he marches back with his 300 troops having defeated the army. Now, when that happens, who should get the credit? Who should get the credit for 300 people defeating 132,000? The, the military can't get the credit. Obviously, there's more going on, so God should get the credit. Well, that's not what happens. Verse 22. Then the Israel, I'm sorry, go to chapter 8. I, I want you to read. There's more to the story that you can read on your own, but chapter 8, verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. They are asking Gideon to be their king. And Gideon knows he's no king. Remember, this is the guy in the pit. So he replies, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. This is one of the rare moments in Gideon's life where he says the right thing. And it's, it's kind of a climax moment where here's this weak leader who acknowledges, look, I shouldn't be your king. My family shouldn't be, your, you know, your leaders. I, I realize who I am. I'm not qualified for that. In fact, it was never supposed to be about me anyway. God should be your leader. God should. And so he points the people to God. That's a cool ending. Only the problem is it's not the end of the story. I, I wish it was. I wish we could stop there. Gideon would be such a, a guy to respect. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 27. Here's what Gideon does next. He makes a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Orpha, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostrated themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. So here's what happens. Instead of becoming king, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Instead of making me king, just give me, give me some gold. Give me some gold rings. Give me some gold. And I'm going to make something for you. And he makes this ephod, ephod, which was a decision-making vest that the priest would wear. Not sure why he made it, but it was just this symbolic thing. And very quickly, the people are like, oh, you won't be our king, but that thing can be our king. We'll worship that thing. That thing must be what saved us. And they start worshiping, and Gideon's family starts worshiping. And you look at Gideon, and you're like, Gideon, what were you thinking? Why didn't you just shut up? You said to worship God. You should have just ended there. But instead, you got this really boneheaded idea, and you went with it. And your people followed it, and it led them not to God, it led his family and his nation away from God. He royally blew it. Now, look what happens next, verse 28. 
This is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian. That's kind of a summary statement. This is how it all happened. And Midian never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. Now out of the 12 judges of Israel's history, 350 years, 12 judges, Gideon is considered to be their greatest. So I want you to read just the end of his story and his legacy. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had how many sons? I, I feel sorry for his poor wife. He had 70 sons born to him for he, oh, he had many wives. There you go. There's the explanation. He had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem. A concubine was a woman on the side who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. Now, the Israelites were very aware of who Abimelech was. Abimelech would go on to be known as one of their worst leaders they had ever had. Abimelech would actually go on to trap the other brother, his other brothers, the 70 sons of Gideon, and he would kill 69 of them. And he would do a horrible job leading the nation. Verse 32, Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father, Joash, an orpha in the land of the clan of Abiezer. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal making Baal Berith their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. How'd you like the end of his story? What in the world is he doing with all these women, first of all? I mean, it's just kind of shocking to get to the end of this faith hero's life and realize the guy is a serial womanizer. And he has this illicit son with this other lady. He's not even married to her, who becomes one of the worst leaders in Israel's history, Abimelech. And as soon as this guy dies, the entire nation just goes right back to worshiping Baal. And there you have the story and legacy of Gideon. <laughs> You're looking at me like I was looking at this, like, what? This guy is a faith hero. So here's the thing. Good luck finding a hero in this story. When you put it under a microscope and look, you find a nation and a people who are disobedient to God and keep rejecting God. And you find a leader who's a coward who God uses in mighty ways despite his constant doubt, his constant fear. In fact, there was even a time where he doubted God and, and he said, God, will you do this miracle? I'm going to put out a fleece. Would you let dew get on it? And God did. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to do it again. And would you let dew not get on it? And it happened. And that's why we use that, some of you use that term, I'm going to lay out a fleece to see if it's God's will. That was not a good example. That was a bad example of someone who didn't trust God, which was the story of Gideon's life. So I just wonder how it's possible after just some of the highlights or lowlights of Gideon's life that we saw that Gideon is looked at as one of Israel's heroes and one of the Bible's faith heroes. How is it possible that the postscript on his life in verse 35 
says that despite all the good he had done for Israel, they didn't show him any loyalty. And how is it possible that in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, where it lists great heroes of the faith, look whose name is there, it would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. How did this guy make the hall of faith? When you read his story and you really put it under a microscope, it is not very easy to figure out why he became a faith hero. So I've grappled with this for years. And one of my hesitations to be too hard on Gideon is this. We have so much more than he did. Like we have the entire Bible and all of these examples and all of this teaching. How much of this did Gideon have? Like maybe the first five books is all he had out of 66. We also have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us from the moment of our salvation for the rest of our life. Gideon didn't. And we also have the church and, and, and leaders and teachers who can help to guide us. And Gideon didn't have any of that. So there's a part of this that I'm like, okay, we got to cut this guy a little bit of slack. But then I reexamined his life again because I wanted to be fair to him and his story and his legacy. And the more I read it and the more I kind of outlined out his life and his story, there's no indication that when he was young, he, he sought God. There's no indication that he was even a follower of God. And when he's old, there's no indication that he even kept the faith. When, when I look at his life, I find a less than average guy filled with tremendous doubt and fear who decided to choose a life of immorality. And I just got to be honest, I don't tend to respect guys who sleep with a bunch of women and father 70 sons. They're just not typically in the hero category for me. So why do we admire Gideon? Why have Christians through the ages admired him as a faith hero? Did God get the right guy? Because what's weird is not only was he not a great person, but under his leadership, it doesn't look like the nation ever really followed God. It looked like it was kind of fake, and as soon as he died, they go right back to doing what they want to do. So what do we learn from this? Like, this is the end of our Faith Hero series, and every hero we've looked at has been a little bit of a disappointment. And Gideon is like this huge disappointment. And you know what this story teaches me? No, not to have a bunch of wives and a bunch of sons. It teaches me that Gideon was an awful lot like me and maybe a lot of you. He is just a guy with a ton of character flaws who struggles to trust God his entire life, who wrestles with his integrity and fails over and over and over. And yet God does some tremendous stuff through Gideon. And you say, God, were you doing this because of who Gideon was? Or maybe was it in spite of Gideon? And I think we have an answer in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Check this out. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Think of Gideon when God called him. Was he wise? 
Was he powerful and was he wealthy? No, he was the guy throwing up little bits of wheat in a pit. I want you to, for a moment, think of yourself. When God called you to be his kid, were you wise, powerful, and wealthy? Maybe you were one of those, maybe two, maybe three. I think most of us would say, uh, I was none of those things. Look at this. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish. Yeah, I think I'd put Gideon in that category. In order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless. I think I'd put Gideon in that category. Anybody with me? To shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all. And use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, read this with me, this is cool. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Did God make a mistake choosing Gideon? Gideon was exactly the type of person God wanted. God looked for the weakest and littlest and most cowardly guy in the kingdom, the guy threshing wheat in a pit, and said, there's my guy. He shows up to him and he says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. See, in this series on faith, I think our our temptation is to keep focusing on our faith. We look at these heroes of the faith and they're like, man, here's a guy who went into battle with 300 people and defeated an army of 132,000. He must have had big faith. And then you look at his life and you're like, not only did he not have big faith, his faith was often non-existent. If anything, it was just minuscule. I think we go off track when we keep talking about the size of our faith. If I were to ask you this morning, how big is your faith? Who would be willing to shout out without any embarrassment the average size of your faith? Because I'm just saying for me, I don't want to reveal to you how weak my faith is. I don't want to reveal how often I doubt and I struggle. Just this past week, right? My faith, I can't use big to describe my faith. And I think for most of us, most of our Christian lives and journeys, they're uneven at best and we wrestle and struggle with the size of our faith, but I think we'd be off track by focusing on the size of our faith. Because what if we have a God who delights in using small faith? What if it's not about the size of our faith at all? What if it's about just the size of our God? Because see, small faith in a big God is the most powerful force in the universe. Anyone awake this morning? Okay, I'm going to repeat that. Small faith in a big God is the most powerful force in the universe. I don't want you to miss this because so often, including in this Faith Heroes series, we make it about, oh, I got to have big faith. And God's like, I already know how weak your faith is. I see you in the bit. I know how weak Your faith is. I I think about Gideon. I'm like, Gideon was not special. He was not powerful. He was not important. He was not influential. He was not even faithful or loyal. He was not courageous. And in my book, he's not even heroic. But he believed in a God 
who is special, powerful, important, influential, loyal, faithful, courageous, and heroic. And that made all the difference. So, there's a few things I've been mulling on about Gideon, a few lessons I've learned. Lesson number one, life is complicated. You ever had someone say, hey, share with me your story? You're like, ooh. Which parts? <laughs> right? And we're kind of selective, depending on how well we know the person of which parts. But I think if we're honest, our stories are complicated. If you had to sum up Gideon's story in two words, I think the summary would be, it's complicated. I, I think most of us would like to tie up our, our lives and our stories in a nice pretty box and a fancy bow and no loose ends. But I don't think most of our stories go that way. Gideon is not a guy who's a white knight riding in to save his people. He's a coward. He's a womanizer who struggles to trust God. He's not faithful or loyal or pure. His story begins with failure and it ends with failure. The Bible's a really honest book. And somehow God used this guy to mightily vanquish the enemy. And Gideon had his good moments. He had his good, one of his best moments when he told his people, don't make me your king. Serve God. And so there's moments in Gideon's life where you're like, that's my guy. That's my hero. Oh, I wish I didn't keep reading his story. And you read till the end and you're like, man, this guy out of the 12 judges of Israel is the best they had. 12 judges over 350 years, and Gideon is literally the best they had. He is widely known as the best judge Israel had. Really? Well, yeah, it's complicated. Another lesson that I, that I learned from this is legacies are often out of our control. And I don't know, maybe I'm thinking about this because I'm 40 now in midlife crisis or whatever. Who knows? I don't know. But... Right, that question that a lot of us ask at different times in our lives, how am I going to be remembered? How are people going to remember me? Will, will my family, will my friends, will the people I care about, will they remember my, my best achievements or are they going to remember my worst moments? Will they talk about my good days or my bad days? Will my life and example inspire them or will it ensnare them? Gideon had very little control over what people chose to remember because thousands of years later people still can't agree if he's a hero or a villain if he's a good guy or a bad guy and i think the truth is actually somewhere in between and i think that's the nature of many of our stories we are not the person our dog thinks we are but we are often not the person our critics say we are the truth is usually somewhere in the middle so what if our reputation? What if our legacy isn't something that we can manage or manipulate? I'm sure Gideon would have loved the chance to edit his story that was recorded. I'm sure if God had handed him a red pen or a sharpie, there would be less than half of this left for us. And yet God didn't give him the chance to edit this story. Reminding me that I think the reality is that legacies are often completely out of our control. Which brings me to just another lesson that I've learned from Gideon's life. Choose your heroes carefully. If you're looking for an example of a really 
good, pure, humble person. And you kind of go cover to cover through this book. I'm not challenging you to do it. You won't find a whole lot. The Bible's really honest about the faults of people. You know, here's the problem with pedestaling people. And as humans, we do it all the time. We do it politically. We do it in the spiritual world. We do it in our families. When we pedestal people, when we make heroes out of people, we often get disappointed for this one simple reason. People make bad heroes. Because people have a track record of disappointing. I look at Gideon and I look at his example and I'm like, I don't think I want my sons to follow his example. I I hope my boys are better husbands than Gideon. I hope my boys are more loyal to God and more faithful to God and have more courage than Gideon. Good grief, I hope I am too. We get in trouble when we look to people for heroes. Because in all this history of the human race, there's been one perfect hero to walk this earth. 20 centuries ago, he was executed because he claimed to be God. And three days later, what did he do? He walked out of his own grave. And he alone can wear the title of hero with no regret and no shame. And you could turn over every rock of Jesus' 33 years, every rock of his life, and under no rock will you find something that Jesus would regret or be ashamed for you to know. You want a hero? There is one that you can look to. And then you think that that hero came and lived not just to rescue me. Like, he's the ultimate rescuer. Gideon was a little case rescuer. Jesus was, a, was the uppercase R rescuer. Jesus didn't just come to rescue me. He came because he wanted to use me and empower me. Jesus delights in accomplishing the impossible with the small and the weak. If God could use Gideon, my friend, he can certainly use you and me. Because see, faith heroes, they were not great people. They were average, ordinary, messed up people who believed in an extraordinary, perfect, and good God. And God used them to display his power and his goodness. What if God isn't looking for perfection? What if God isn't looking for goodness? What if God's not even looking for big faith? What if God is just looking for Gideon's? People who struggle with faith and integrity their entire lives. And what if God is just looking for people who will let him use them? God doesn't need an army. He can defeat an army with 300 guys. God can deliver a nation with one Gideon. And my friends... God is still looking for Gideons. He's still looking for people of weak faith and questionable character who believe in him and say, use me. If you'll go with me, I'll go where you tell me to go. If you're with me, I'll do what you tell me to do. If God can use a guy like Gideon, my friends, there's hope for all of us. You bow with me. This is 
the end of our faith hero series. The more we've looked at these faith heroes, the more I've been convinced that these were not awesome people. These were regular, ordinary, messed up people who believed in God and let him use them. My friends, I don't think after studying Gideon that I have any excuse, and I don't think you do either, to say that God can't use us. You say, yeah, but I've, I've got a past. Yeah, but I've got a weakness. Yeah, I don't have big faith. God, God can use someone else, and yet God is there at your pit looking down at you saying, hey, mighty hero, I am with you. I'm with you. You're like, God, you're at the wrong pit. I'm not a mighty hero, and most of my life I don't even feel like you're with me. Look at my nation, God. It's a mess. Look at my family, God. It's a mess. Look at my life, God. It's a mess. And God's like, go in the strength I've given you. I'm with you. You serve a God who can defeat an army with a handful of men. You serve a God who can deliver a nation with a messed up guy like Gideon. And all God asks for you, he doesn't ask for your big faith. He just asks for the faith that you have. He meets you where you're at. And he says, can I use you? Can I use you? We're going to end this morning at our physical campuses with a song titled, Battle Belongs. And it's this, it's this cry to God that we're in a battle and, and we can only win this battle in his strength and in his power. Because the enemy's bigger than us. The enemy's braver than us. The enemy has more ammunition than us. And that's why we only win this battle on our knees. My friends, don't ever catch yourself saying, God can't use me. God is the God who used Gideon and turned him into a hero of the faith just because he was willing to be used. Father, thank you that you take the weak faith of people like me, that you take our messed up, broken, complicated lives and you rescue us and then you pull us out of our pit and you turn us into usable instruments to display your power. God, we sing this with all of our hearts. The battle belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.